The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old-school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 10, the party tries to get the jump on Raffenfell whom they recognize by the smell of embalming agent that clings to his clothes. Kagan breaks down the door to his room, but the other man is long gone. Somehow, it seems, he knew they were coming. In the morning, the party leaves the North End Inn, some might say they were kicked out, and joins the scouting expedition, led by the gruff Captain Tor. Several days pass uneventfully, while the expedition makes their way up the South Road and then follows the goblin map moving west into the Kingswood. When they determine that they have reached the spot indicated on the map, they spread out to search the area. Before too long, one of the men discovers the body of a giant wolf. Not only is it dead, but the beast's head is missing. Chapter 11, Part 1, Day 14, Afternoon. Everyone is at maximum hit points. Captain Tor, 17 of 17. Eiffold, 5 of 5. Mun, 5 of 5. Riley the Roach, 7 out of 7. Thurn Stonecarver, 19 of 19. Harl Stonecarver, 5 of 5. Kagan, 8 of 8. Umura, 5 of 5. Gyrios, 7 out of 7. Eridine, 4 out of 4. Spells available. Umura has memorized Charm Person. The laughter and goofy banter of the previous days were gone. Grim-faced, Captain Tor issued commands and the spearmen took to their flanks, arms at the ready, Riley fitted an arrow to his bowstring. Mazagar, save us, said Gyrios. Do creatures like this really exist? This is the same kind of animal that attacked my family. They were helping the goblins. I know there were at least two of them, maybe more. I'm not sure. There was so much screaming, so much blood, it, it's hard to remember. Kagan was scratching his beard. My father once told me about these things. I've never actually seen one before, though. They're more than giant wolves. They're worse. They can think almost as men do. 
My father called them wargs. Kagan's father was right. Also sometimes called the dire wolf, said Tor. Sometimes they served the goblins as mounts. Gyrios was staring at the place where the warg's head had been. He could make out the spine amid the purplish inner flesh of the neck. A pool of thick black blood had formed beneath it. Flies zipped around, flying their crazy zigzags and settling down to gorge themselves in it. Leading away from the corpse was a trail of blood. It didn't take a tracker to see which direction the warg had come from, or, more likely, in which the head had been taken. Tor motioned to his men and the group followed it in single file, very slowly. Tor took lead with Kagan right behind. No one spoke. After a time, the ground started to slope down, first just a little, and then more, until they found themselves at the base of an escarpment. They continued their slow pace, pausing only rarely to rediscover the blood trail, until they reached a ledge of rock that hung over an even deeper ravine. At the bottom, a natural rock wall stretched up and up, forming the ravine's opposite side. Great stone slabs covered with moss and the occasional tree, growing against all odds straight out of the wall, kept sentinel over the shadowy bottom, where a cave opening, like a giant maw, yawned into darkness. To either side of the cave mouth, a pair of wooden stakes jutted from the earth where someone had wedged them into a crack. Impaled on each stake was a dripping head. On the right, the warg's head, canted to one side with jaws open and pointed up, frozen in an eternal midnight howl. The stake to the left bore the severed head of an ogre. In fact, even from this distance, it seemed to the original party members that it was THE ogre. The beast's dim eyes, half shut, looked stupidly into nothing. The jaw hung slack, the short tusks pointing to the ground and the tongue lolling out like a fat white worm. Black clouds of flies moved back and forth between them, favoring first the one head, then the other. The group of men and dwarves found that by moving only 50 yards away from the blood trail and into thicker brush, they could have almost complete concealment from below, but still see the cave mouth clearly. Once they'd situated themselves at this new vantage, Tor addressed the group. Our mission is to observe and report back. We wait here and watch. Nobody talks. I want two people on lookout at all times. Another two will guard the rear. Captain! A short whisper from Riley. He was pointing down at the cave's mouth. I see something moving. A bare-chested goblin dragging a short spear lazily behind it emerged from the darkness of the cave, squinting at the daylight. It stopped to admire the ogre's head and then leaned the spear against the rock face. It lifted its filthy loincloth and began urinating on the base of the stake. When finished, it collected its weapon and wandered back into the darkness. The rotating watch saw no other movement for the rest of the day, nor did the rear guard. Some of the men, while off duty, tried to nap. Most were unable to relax and just sat, leaning against the trees and listening to the sounds of the forest, maybe thinking of home, maybe thinking too much about how an ogre's head came to be part of the goblin's home decor. Umura, having been unable to leave any equipment with Gurdon, produced the snakeskin-bound book and began to read. She understood little of it, but she persevered. Each concept seemed to dart away from her like a skittish forest creature as soon as she drew close. Undaunted, she read and reread and read yet again until she was dizzy with the ideas. It wasn't until the owls heralded the coming of evening 
and the dimming light made the words on the page begin to blur and vanish into the gloom that something in her mind began to form, to crystallize into revelation. She understood. In that single moment, Umura felt a familiar tingling sensation on the wrist of her right hand. She closed the book, blinked hard, and held her wrist up to better see it. With a growing sense of pure joy, she watched as a new tattoo printed itself on her wrist as if done by an invisible needle and phantom artist. She looked about her. Nobody seemed to be paying her any attention. Umura smiled to herself. Her mind had discovered and harnessed a new power. She quickly reached into her bag and withdrew a quill, ink, and Derman's spellbook. Well, it was her spellbook now. With a trembling hand, she inscribed a new incantation into the pages, capturing it there, before, like a dream, it could be lost and forgotten. By and by, the failing light made it hard to see, but still the scouting party watched. Evening became night. The moon came out and the forest was transformed into a world of silver shapes. Moonlight bathed the ravine and clear vision was restored. Some time past midnight, one of the watchers, it was hard to tell who, gave a st, Captain. Kagan peered down from their concealment. There was activity below. Four goblins, silent as the shadows, were leaving the mouth of the cave. Each one carried a knife, a bow, and shouldered a full quiver. Hunting party, said Tor, echoing Kagan's thoughts. This could be a chance to really learn something. He gathered everyone into a huddle and continued in a whisper. Theron, you and Harl will keep watching the cave. Gods, I'd like to take you with us, but... Harl nodded and tapped his plate mail to indicate he understood. He couldn't move quickly or quietly enough in such heavy armor. Mun, you stay too. Guard their rear. If there's something watching us, we don't want it to catch you unawares once the rest of us are away. Everyone else? We follow that hunting party. We'll let them get well away from that cave. Remember, once we strike, it must be fast and quiet. If they raise the alarm, we're all dead. Sheriff, Riley, when you shoot, don't miss. Most importantly, at least one of the little bastards needs to live. Once we have a prisoner, Umura, you'll do the talking. The first thing you tell it is to stay quiet. Tor asked if there were questions. There were none, and the larger group broke off to follow their quarry. Keeping up with the goblins was not difficult, for they moved slowly. Kagan thought the goblins were impressive hunters. They made no sound as they moved, not a rustle or snap. The same could not be said of the party, and Kagan thought they'd given themselves away several times. But no, if the goblins had noticed them, they showed no sign. After an hour, they stopped. Perhaps they sighted an animal. The four could be seen slowly drawing arrows from their quivers. Tor nodded. This chance was as good as they would be getting. He motioned for Kagan and Aerodine to go right. Eiffold and Riley would go left. He, Umura, and Girios would keep position. They were to volley on his signal and then close the pincer. Tor wished they could have been at closer range, but he couldn't risk their being detected. When the flanks were in place, Tor instructed Umura to stay back until the fighting was done. Then he gave the whistle, and the first volley streaked away from the archers. Dramatis Personae, Umura. 
This episode is a big deal for our magic user. This is the one where she ascends to level two, and the first ever level up in Tale of the Manticore. This first evolution is such a big deal for characters, arguably the most important of them all, because it doubles their hit points, and, in Umura's case, doubles the number of spells she can memorize. In the ways that matter most, she literally becomes twice as strong. Umura has been hard at work in her off minutes and hours, trying to understand the contents of the snakeskin-bound text she took from Raffenfell's laboratory. We can assume that even when she isn't actively reading and studying from the book, she's still thinking about it, more or less, all the time. Today she has had a breakthrough moment and will draw a new spell for her efforts. Before we get to that, I should mention that Umura has just cracked the surface of this book. There's a lot more in it that she still needs to puzzle through. However, Umura will have to survive another 12 episodes before she attains level 3. That's quite a long way to go in real-world time. Episode 0, plus 10 more to get to level 2, plus another 12 to reach level 3. For a show that comes out twice a month, we're looking at close to a year. As a kind of further bonus for getting to level 2, Umura will get the chance to apply her newfound insight to the spell that she before had failed to understand. I don't see that describing this second chance in narrative would make particularly engaging storytelling, so we'll just work it out here and now. We can assume that the next time Umura has time to sit down and study, she'll take another go. Let's find out if she'll succeed. She needs to roll her intelligence of 17 or less on a die 20. Here's the roll. I've rolled a 10. That's a success. Umura now has two spells to choose from, and she's about to get a third. I'm just going to roll against the list of first-level spells in the basic rulebook. There's 12 of them, so all I need to do is roll the d12. Let's see what she gets. I've rolled a 4. Checking the table, she has learned Hold Portal, a spell that magically seals a door or gate against enemies. Not what I expected to happen, but still pretty cool. Of course, there are benefits to leveling other than just an increase in Umura's magical abilities. Her hit points double from 5 to 10. That alone is a very big deal. It takes her out of the one-hit, one-kill danger zone that first-level characters, especially wizards and rogues, inhabit. I had to go back to the rules to see if to-hit rolls or saving throws would be adjusted by this level change. They aren't. I think that leaves just one thing. I'm not sure when the makers of D&D added ability score improvements to the rules, but I like the idea. And furthermore, I think it makes sense. Characters would become stronger, smarter, wiser, and better leaders through their experiences. I've seen a homebrew system that I like, in which a d6 is rolled for each ability score, and if a 6 comes up, that ability increases by 1. I'm going to adopt it, at least for now. Let's get a 6-sided die, and hope for some good luck. I'll go straight down the list. Here we go. Umura has a strength of 8. A bonus here would remove her attack penalty. A 2 won't do it. Intelligence is next. A 1. Wisdom. 4. Dexterity. Another 4. Next up is Constitution. A 6. Hey, that's lucky. She already had a 13, so she moves up to 14. However, there will be no practical change here. Since I'll not include my luck stat in this list, there's just one left. Charisma. I rolled a 2. This episode has been a big one indeed for our magic user. But we aren't finished, because Gyrios is also leveling up today. If you're wondering about Kagan and Eridine, they'll both have to wait just a little longer, because both of them sat out part of the adventure earlier on. 
Soli would have leveled up today if he'd not. Well, we don't need to talk about that. Back to Gyrios. His hit points will double, going from a 7 to a whopping 14. Holy moly seems like an appropriate thing to say. Normally, at second level, a cleric would gain their first spell. Unlike magic users, clerics can pray for any first level spell. And once they've cast the spell, they can opt to pray for a different spell the next time after they've rested. Gyrios, unfortunately, does not have his holy symbol, and he needs one to cast a spell. We'll see how this plays out when we get back to the story. That leaves us with ability score improvements. Here are the rolls. For strength, a five will not help. Intelligence, a one. Wisdom is prime requisite. A five is not good enough. Dexterity, a four. Constitution, a six. How strange that he and Umura both got this benefit. He goes from a 14 to 15. Like with Umura, this will have no practical effect, but the improvement might help either one of them down the road. Lastly, we have Charisma. Getting this would remove a penalty. Nope, a two will not do the trick. I think that about does it for our character level ups. All the changes described, except where otherwise mentioned, will take place immediately. After this brief message, we'll get back to the forest and see how the scouting expedition fares with their attempt to capture a prisoner. Hello listeners, my name is Austin Moraga, host of the Ironbound Chest, a new interview podcast that focuses on discussing monthly topics relating to D&D and TTRPGs. Each week I aim to bring on someone from around the community. Podcasters, streamers, world builders, writers, dice makers, map makers, mini painters, home brewers, cosplayers, singers, artists, illustrators, crafters, collectors, creators, and listeners. The chest is slowly but surely being filled with amazing and wonderful things, and I invite you all to help me in this task. You can find me on Spotify and almost wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for The Ironbound Chest. You can even find me on Twitter and Facebook. So I hope you take the time to listen and to help me add some wealth to the Ironbound Chest. Part 2. Day 14. Midnight. Everyone is at maximum hit points, but hit point maximums have changed. Party status. Captain Tor, 17 of 17 hit points. Eiffel, 5 of 5. Riley the Roach, 7 of 7. Kagan, 8 out of 8 hit points. Umura, 10 out of 10 hit points. Gyrios, 14 out of 14 hit points. Eridine, 4 of 4 hit points. Spells available. Umura has memorized Charm Person. The four goblins of the hunting party are so focused on their quarry, a good-sized wild hog snuffling among some roots, that they have left their rear completely unprotected. Our archers can each get off one free shot before initiative is rolled and the rest of the group closes to melee range. Each goblin has an armor class of six and is armed with a short bow and skinning knife. These goblins each have four hit points. That's not a lot. I guess the weakest of the tribe got sent on hunting duty. This fight should be an easy one for the party. The trick will be to capture one of the goblins before any of them can get away.
Round one. Our archers will each get a free shot before combat begins. Eredin and Riley each have a plus one dexterity bonus, so they need a 12 to hit the goblin's armor class of six. Eredin pulls her bowstring all the way back to her ear, as Swin showed her, and sights down the shaft. She steadies her breathing and waits for the signal. When it comes, she releases. A 19. Her aim is true. But the goblin, by dumb luck, shifts at the last moment, and the arrow merely clips it for one point. <coughs> Riley fires as well. A 14. He has also scored a hit for three points. The goblin screeches as an arrow plants itself in its shoulder. The party charges. Initiative. The goblins. They've rolled a four. The party? Also a four. That means everyone will attack simultaneously. If anyone should fall, they'll still get the chance to retaliate. I'll rule that Eredin and Riley will not get to fire again this round. Tor swings his longsword at one of the goblins. Normally he would need a 13 to hit, but with his strength bonus, he needs a 12. He's got a 17, that's a hit. Four, two points of damage. Kagan's next. He also needs a 12. A roll of 10 is not enough. Eiffold is next. Like the others, he needs a 12 to hit the goblin's armor class of six. A 19, that's a hit. For six damage, his spear goes all the way through the goblin. He has to put his foot against the creature's chest to pull the weapon free. Gyrio swings. A nine, that's a miss. As initiative was simultaneous, all goblins get a counterattack. One of them attacks Eiffelt. It needs a 15 to hit his armor class of four. A five is a miss. The goblin on Tor also needs a 15. He's rolled a 19. Somehow he's gotten past the veteran's defenses and hits four, three points of damage with his skinning knife. Gyrios is attacked. His goblin needs a 16 to hit his armor class of three. The roll is a 16. This goblin has also scored a hit. Gyrios takes two points of damage. Finally, Kagan is attacked. Kagan's AC is four. The goblin needs a 15 to hit him. With a 12, the goblin misses. Round two. Now three goblins are left. They have one, three, and four hit points. Initiative. The goblins. A two. The party. A five. Tor swings his longsword one more time. He rolls a 16. That's a hit. And with seven points of damage, that goblin's head goes flying. Kagan swings as well. With a six, his hand axe hits only air. Eiffel thrusts his spear a second time. But a four will not do it. Gyrios is up. Another four. That's a miss. Two goblins now remain. As half of their numbers are down, they're going to need to roll a morale check right now. The goblin's morale is a seven. They've rolled a seven. In the case of a tie, the rules say these goblins will fight on. Now only two goblins remain and both are wounded. Here's their counterattack. One of the goblins will attack Eiffelt. It needs a 15 to hit him. With a 14, it just misses. Eiffelt has blocked the goblin's knife with his shield. The goblin on Kagan strikes. 
A 19. That's a hit. The goblin does two points of damage. <coughs> Round three. There are two goblins left. Initiative. The goblins. They rolled a one. The party. A six. The party wins. The party senses victory is close. Per their plan, Kagan and Tor will fight to subdue, attempting to knock one of the goblins prone and render it helpless. Tor swings. He's got no one. That's a critical fail. He's going to miss his next turn. Kagan tries. A seven. Another miss. Eifold is attacking to kill. A twenty. That's an instant kill. Once again, Eifold has thrust his spear straight through one of the creatures. Therios is pretty good at thinking on his feet. He switches his lethal attack to one that's meant to subdue. A 19. For three points of damage, that's enough. He knocks the goblin on the head and it goes out cold. When the creature wakes up, it finds it has been tied to a tree. One of its eyes is swollen shut and it has a fat lip. Blood weeps from a slit in its heaving chest. The remains of its companions, one of them headless, lay crumpled on the forest floor all around it. The party is wrapping bandages around their various wounds. Tor is cursing himself for letting one of the goblins get past his guard. The captive goblin does not speak the common tongue, and so it hisses defiance in its own language. Zebak, human. <coughs> it is completely unprepared when the human woman approaches from behind a tree and replies in its own language. Now, Glergon, Choba. I'll make a reaction roll to see if the goblin will give up any information. It helps that Umura is speaking its language. We'll say that cancels Umura's charisma penalty in this case. I've rolled a four. Not good. The goblin coughs and spits a bloody gobule of phlegm at Umura. Umura wipes off the phlegm, keeping her anger in check, and casts Charm Person. The goblin saving throw is a 16. If it saves, they won't be able to get much information from the creature at all, and what they do get could be false information. Here's the roll. A six. Suddenly, the goblin is overwhelmed by new feelings for the human wizard. Its expression slackens. Umura searches her memory for the goblin word for friend, but comes up empty. As far as she knows, there is no such word. She considers keten, which means master, but instead opts for na jutikal, meaning no enemy. A long conversation ensues in which the goblin spills his guts and tells the magic user everything it knows. Seeing her as one of them, it speaks quickly and excitedly. I'll make three rolls against intelligence for Umura to follow and extract the important information from the rush of verbiage that bombards her. If she succeeds only once, she won't get much out of this. Two successes will be roughly half of the information and three successes will indicate that she more or less learns everything this goblin knows. Here are the rolls. A 10. A 3. An 11. Umura has understood everything this goblin has told her. Here are some of the most important details from the interrogation. The goblin's name is Ilk. The cave is not their main colony, but merely an outpost. It's a natural cavern with five rooms. None of the goblins are allowed to enter the second room. Ilk doesn't know why. The goblin's actual colony is many days' travel from here. There is a leader goblin here, 
named Vashuk, who is apparently very strong and very mean. There is one warg here as well. There used to be two, but one of them has died. As for the number of goblins, he says he thinks there are 30 or so, but he isn't sure. Ilk then tells Umura a story that explains the headless warg that they found earlier. Ilk says that four goblins went off to deliver some slaves about a week ago and never returned. A search party was sent out, using the warg to track the missing goblins. They didn't find them, but they did find an ogre. There was a terrible battle, and the ogre was killed. But it took three goblins with it. One of the wargs was mortally wounded and died from its injuries a day after they returned. Finally, they had business with a human who bought slaves and paid well. Ilk's not sure about his name. It was Riff or Raff or something similar. When Umura asks Ilk if there are more slaves in the cavern, Ilk says yes, there are two. A dwarf and a human. When the interrogation is finished, Tor comes over to confirm that she has milked the creature dry of everything that might be of use. Umura responds in the affirmative, and Tor shows his blade to her, tilting his head to one side. I'm afraid it's necessary to... well, you might want to turn away. Are you kidding? Umura replies, and with that, she shoves her own knife directly into the goblin's sternum, all the way to the hilt. The goblin slumps forward against its bonds. I hate these filthy things. As she pulls her blade free and wipes it clean on the goblin's corpse, Umura realizes something extraordinary. Although she's cast her charm spell, curiously, she still holds it in her memory. She looks at the new tattoo on her wrist and lets slip a small laugh of delight. Tor, mistaking it for enjoyment in murdering the captive, looks away quickly to hide his expression. He might have misjudged this woman. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy what you've heard and would like to support the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. It helps a great deal. Feel free to drop me a line at taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. You can also see me on Instagram. For show notes, more behind-the-scenes info, rants, and random thoughts, please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. Our story continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. The following podcast is not intended for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The Iron Realm. When all planes of existence fall to ash, there is only one realm that remains. The Iron Realm. Before you in all directions, deep in the dark, there lies the maze. The Iron Realm. Millions of miles of corridors, caves, tunnels without end. This is the ultimate dungeon. Orcs, guys, kobolds, trolls. Ready your sword, your spells, your crossbow, your warhammer. The Iron Realm. Keep close, your companions, for they are your only hope for survival. Elf, fighter, wizard, cleric. There are no rerolls. There is no way out. Yet here, in the dark, if any of the merciful gods still remain, you may find the strength you need to 
fights, the cunning you need to hide, and the luck you need to stay alive just a little longer. Iron Realm! Iron Realm! Iron Realm! I am your maze master, Abel Enzo. Get your dice and graph paper, and be sure to bring your friends. I'll see you in the round. <laughs>